Um, I, I, <clears throat> I can't take the traditional Southern Baptist approach to Christmas time of standing up here and talking to you for 45 minutes in sentimental terms about Christmas. But neither can I take the Reformed Baptist approach of standing up here and talking for an hour and 45 minutes about how awful you are and how grateful you should be that Jesus came and saved you, although that would be true. And I'm certainly not going to read you a selection of passages in Latin while, while uh, Jeremiah follows me around with the, you know, what is that thing called? That thurible full of uh, frankincense, wearing my vestments and my Christmas shawl. That would be weird. We're not going to do that. Um, and I won't take the coward's way out, which is to disregard Advent altogether, because, you know, Jesus certainly wasn't born in December. I committed to an Advent series every year because I believe with all my heart that this season is precious. Uh, then it, the onus is on me to prove to you that what I'm convinced of in my heart is right. Um, the practice of stopping at the end of every calendar year and commemorating the coming of Jesus is nowhere commanded in Scripture. It's one of those traditions. Um, it just happens to be one I think we're completely permitted to engage in and one that I want to engage in. And, and to whatever degree, sermons that are preached during this season of the year make much of Jesus Christ, then it's a good practice, right? The trouble is, and you can ask any preacher this, um, what do you preach for four Sundays year after year during Advent? And this being really the only, only the second time I've ever done it, I feel like I shouldn't be struggling to find a, a series of messages to preach, and I'm not. Um, this is a really long intro basically to say that if you don't commit yourselves to saying amen occasionally while I preach, I interpret that as disapproval. Uh, so I'm putting it on you to keep me encouraged as I'm preaching, but don't fake it. Okay. <laughs> Two weeks ago, we heard a sermon about the theme of hope. And what we did was we started in Romans 8 and we saw where Paul says in Romans 8 that the creation, all of it, was subjected to futility because of the fall of man into sin. But the interesting thing of note is that he, he says he, sub, he subjected creation to futility, but he did so in the framework of hope. So while there's futility, God wove into that futility hope. All of creation is hoping for something better than what it currently experiences. So in order to kind of buttress that reality as we enter the Christmas season, what I did was I, I looked at uh, three things um, that turned into six things that really is nine things if you think about it correctly. So what we looked at was that, the fact that God encourages hope in his creatures that he fans the flames of hope within us in spite of the difficulties of life. And the examples that we looked at, there were three. This is getting us to six. 
There was Hannah, David, and Mary. We saw how God encouraged hope in their hearts. Hannah, um, of course, the mother of Samuel, the first prophet. David, of course, the first righteous king uh, over Israel. And Mary, the mother, uh, the human mother of Jesus Christ. We saw, second, how God fans the flames of hope in his people. Hannah is told her prayers will be answered, which is something that we often experience, our prayers being answered, right? David is told that his guilt is forgiven, even though he continues to endure the consequences of his sin. He doesn't live under the judgment of God for it anymore. And Mary is told she is favored by God. So that was the how. So we had the, 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 the three uh, people. We've got three things. We've got that, we've got how, and then we've got where this happens. Um, Hannah was given hope in the midst of her shame. The shame that she bore because she was barren in her culture uh, that was equivalent to being a sinner. Just nobody knew exactly what it was that you had done. David was given hope in the midst of his overwhelming guilt. And Mary was given hope in the midst of her overwhelming fearfulness. Woven through all three of these examples was the truth of Jesus Christ, how he bore shame so that we could have hope in the midst of shame, how he bore our guilt on the cross at Calvary so that we could be cleansed of our unrighteousness, and how he stood steadfast while the Father turned his face away so that we might never have to fear leaving this life and going into the one to come separate from our Creator. So it was making much of Jesus. I just took a roundabout way to get there. Okay. Um, I prayed at the end that our congregation would be fully surrendered to Jesus Christ, whatever our circumstances. Last week, we ventured into Isaiah 57. The first thing we saw in Isaiah 57 was how closely the culture in Isaiah's day resembles the culture in our day. Um, I'm not going to re rehearse all of that. We don't have time. Suffice it to say, evil everywhere. Um, and I likened this evil to a clanging noise, just constantly beating us down with incessant clanging, which goes against what we want to experience and what we feel is glorifying to God this constant clanging of the culture in evil is discouraging. And I suggested that you learn, after a while of being a Christian, you learn to expect the clanging blows of culture. You wince before they even come. Anxiety rises up in your heart as a result of them. Then we turned away from the telescope that we had on our culture and we looked instead into the mirror of Scripture and saw for ourselves how we are a lot different than the society we detest. We still have much remaining corruption. So we've got the noise, the clanging evil from outside, and then we have it even just between our head and our hearts, we have the clanging noise of our remaining corruption. And what I then noted was that 
we, we try because we want some relief. We try to escape the noise by repeated visits to our own temples of our own idols and seek to find relief there. And I named just a few, Netflix, Amazon, Snapchat, TikTok, Candy Crush, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit. And that, you know, I realize I'm 42. There's probably a new app that all the kids are on that I don't know about. I'll find out soon enough if I didn't mention it. I left out alcohol, cannabis, prescription drugs, and pornography. Seems like those never change. And none of those things quiet the racket. They'll distract you for a little while, but they don't get rid of it. None of these things gives us the peace that we so desperately desire. We didn't stay there. We saw in verse 15 in in Isaiah uh, 57 how God condescends. And you can't help but but realize that this ultimate condescension of God is seen in how he wrapped himself in human flesh and became a baby on Christmas Day. Like, that's condescension. To leave glory in the incomprehensible riches that he enjoyed there where he needed for nothing. And come here is condescension. God dwells in a high and holy place. This is Isaiah 57, 15. And with him who is contrite and lowly of spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Contrite meaning full of regret, meaning remorseful, guilt-ridden, ashamed, and afraid. God wants to revive you. I'm not making those things up. They are in here. It's what he says about himself. And the way that he does it is through Jesus Christ. So we go to Luke 2 and we see the shepherds out in the field and the angel shows up and he announces to them, hey, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be uh, seen in this baby that you'll find in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. That will be a sign. When you see that baby in that manger wrapped in those swaddling clothes, clothes, that will be a sign for you that there is to be peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. Peace, like hope, can only be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what I'm suggesting is that we have to gaze periodically at these moments leading up to and including his birth because peace could not exist, hope could not exist, and today's theme couldn't exist without him coming. Today we look at an even more distant theme, joy. Joy is the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or the prospect of obtaining what one desires. Joy is defined as the emotion evoked by success, well-being, or the prospect of gaining that which one desires. According to the dictionary, joy might only exist when circumstances allow it to. Habakkuk 1, the prophet 
Habakkuk was a man deeply desirous for God to be honored in his own culture. And he prayed for this and, and felt that God was silent to his prayers. Verse one says, uh, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. So he, he looked out on the people of Israel and lamented over the spiritual conditions because they were so abysmal. Verses three through four. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Now that's quite a charge against God. But what Habakkuk is doing is he is giving voice to what it appears things are like to him. God just looks at all the evil in the world and doesn't seem to care. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Destruction, violence, strife, and contention arise. The law is paralyzed by these things and therefore justice cannot move. It is restricted from moving. Ultimately, then, justice is perverted. This is how Habakkuk sees his country. God replies in verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth and seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth only from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. The horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all call for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. At rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. And they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose might is their God. All right, so we'll take just a brief break from Habakkuk and let me comment on what we've just read. God is working even when we think he's not. That's first. Second, God uses whatever he wants to accomplish his ends, his purposes. So those are the two things. God is working even when we think he's not. That's one. And his his purposes can be accomplished through things that we can't even conceive he's using to accomplish his purposes with. Um, There will be, listen, um, Thank God I don't stand up here as a 27-year-old imagining these things to be true, but as a 42-year-old who knows these things now to be true. Otherwise, I would have no right, I think, to say it, although it would still be true. There will be times when you think not only is God silent, but he is opposed to you. There will be times when no matter how hard you try, you reap dust and ashes. There will be times when the diagnosis does not change, 
The job offer does not come. The car won't start. The loved one won't get better. The righteous are imprisoned. Sometimes the wicked do prosper at your expense. Sometimes it seems like there's absolutely no justice. But none of those things means that God is not at work. Our circumstances can be breathtakingly painful. Amen? And none of that makes for joy in our hearts. It doesn't. It's okay to be honest about that. But none of that means that God is unaware or absent. Back in Habakkuk verse 12. Habakkuk hears God's plan and he doesn't love it. Right? Um, are you not from everlasting? Like, it's almost like he's saying, do I need to say this? I'm talking to the omniscient, omnipotent, all-knowing God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You've ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And then he brings others of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet and he rejoices and is glad. So what does he do? He sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his boat. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. If he then is to keep on emptying his net, I'm sorry, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Verse one of chapter two, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out and see what the Lord will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. All right, lots to talk about. Habakkuk would prefer God use a different means to accomplish his purposes. Fair enough? All right, we're gonna lose this because it's gonna be a few minutes and I think everybody's being blinded by it. Um, You can't see me as well. There we go, that's what I'm looking for. Habakkuk would prefer God use a different means to accomplish his purposes. Here's why. The Babylonians were merciless, indiscriminate conquerors. If the Babylonians are turned loose on Israel, that's the Chaldeans, I'm sorry. Interchangeable, Chaldeans, Babylonians. If the Chaldeans are turned loose on Israel and they do just what's in their nature to do, the result will be horrifying for Israel. And Habakkuk realizes this. So the question that he has is, how is that better than what's already happening in Israel? How's that an improvement? Okay, God, I hear you're... Okay, you're not 
sitting idly by, but, but th- this is essentially what the prophet says. He says, I'm frustrated because there are so few in Israel who care about doing what's right. Most are engaged in breathtaking immorality. So he prays and he says, God, why does it seem like you're indifferent to the evil happening all around? Don't you care? Don't you want to intervene? And God answers, revealing to the prophet exactly what he has planned to do. I'm sending the Chaldeans to conquer Judah. Habakkuk is shocked. The Babylonian Empire is far more evil than the evil I was just complaining about in my nation a moment ago. At least among those in Israel, there are a handful of people who regard your law and keep it. Why would you subject them to judgment by such an evil nation as the Chaldeans? Now, don't miss this. When you pray... Sometimes, after you've finished praying, things actually get far worse. And if you're anything like me, you start thinking, well, that's because God is silent. Well, he wasn't silent to Habakkuk. He answered Habakkuk. And things get far worse. And it's not an accident. Habakkuk's circumstances do not improve one whit as a result of the answer that he gets back from God. They get worse. He finds out that the news is worse than he realized. Many times, this will be the case for us. The hits just keep on coming, don't they? None of us find that that makes for joy in our hearts. I prayed and things got worse, that does not make for joy in my heart. But none of that either means that God is unaware or absent. You prayed, things got worse. It's not that he's unaware and it's not that he's on vacation. Chapter two, verse two, the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. All right, this is a little bit confusing because we want everything to be linear and chronological, and sometimes it's not. What's happening here is, remember, Uh, Habakkuk responded to God's response. And he's like, "Uh, what? And God says, relax, don't worry. What I want you to do is write the vision that I just gave you on billboards so that people can read it and start running for their lives. Now, while Israel is running for their lives and it seems like that's never going to end, and this torment is never going to stop, I want you to know, Habakkuk, it will end. It's not going to last forever. If it seems slow to end, wait. It's coming. The end's coming. Now, I look around our world, and I'll admit, not at, like, at Target, or not at the, the diner, and not really even so much at work on a day-to-day basis. I admit it. you got to lift up a few rocks and look underneath them. But you will find, as you look out in the world, there is evil being gotten away with everywhere. 
gotten away with. None of that makes for joy in our hearts, right? Verse four, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. I labored when this popped into my head yesterday as I was banging out this outline in my own head and heart. Like, should I say these things or not say these things? But they're here, so I'm going to say them because I think that's what God has ordained. I have heard this verse, Habakkuk 2.4, preached, isolated, partly because it's in Romans 1, Galatians 3, and Hebrews 10. But I've heard it preached isolated in a somewhat negligent and, and narrow point of emphasis is made. And, and, and this is like basically this is how it works. The righteousness of humility is emphasized. And that sermon would basically be about how evil pride is and how righteous the humble are. A God is thereby made out of humility and Christians are exhorted to bow and scrape in order to prove their mettle. My issue with that emphasis is that I'm never quite certain who we're supposed to be bowing and scraping to. I know this, if humility doesn't display itself in your interactions with other people, I dare say it's false humility. And preachers sometimes love to emphasize their humility before God, lest anyone notice their lack of it before anyone else. That may seem like an unnecessary tangent and like I'm grinding an ax. I'm not. I just think that some of you have heard the same sermons and I want to correct a little bit. When God says, as for the puffed up one, his soul, it's not right within him. There is a context to that remark. This passage isn't about the importance of humility. It's not. There are other passages that talk about that. This one tips its hat to the concept, but that's not what the Lord is trying to accomplish with verse 4. This is a passage about the possession of peace, hope, and joy in the midst of impossible circumstances. God, why don't you seem to care about all the evil around me? And God says, I do care. I'm sending judgment. The nation is going to get obliterated. Oh. Why would you do that? That's not, that doesn't help. Because I and those like me will get caught up in that judgment. So that's worse, right? I mean, I'm, God, I'm glad you answered me. I, I appreciate that, like, now I know you're not indifferent, but the plans you have are going to devastate. 
And a result of me hearing those plans is that I don't have any reason to hope, I don't see any peace, and I don't see any joy. And God says, look, from a limited, physical, temporal, human perspective, you're right. But you shouldn't be living by sight. You should be living by faith. It has a context. The verse has a context. So we spent three weeks in James 1 just talking about trials. And I concluded that counting it all joy doesn't mean that you have joy during trials instead of sorrow. You all remember that? I said what we have is we have joy alongside our sorrow in the midst of trials. That these things run parallel. And, and you want to know why you lack for joy? In the midst of a trial, like I told you that too. How are we supposed to, what was it he said? How are we supposed to view our trials? There was something in something. Oh, we're supposed to view them in supernatural light, on supernatural grounds. Which means we have to walk and live not by what we see and not by what we hear and what we experience, but by what has been promised and proven in the gospel. So I judge my situation, whatever it is, on the basis of an empty cross and an empty tomb. Remember? Yeah, politicians are getting away with it. I'm not going to name a name lest I lose half my audience. Whatever one you have in mind, you're right. They're getting away with it. Corporations, whichever one, you're right. They're getting away with it. Yes, immoral people rule the airwaves. Yes, drunkenness and drug abuse is decimating our communities all over the United States. Everything, yes, everything is terrible. You're absolutely right, but don't worry. Our country will get annihilated by one of our enemies. Yeah, they're going to come in and they're going to, this is not a word from the Lord. I'm illustrating something for you, okay? So calm down. They're going to come in, they're going to round us up and put us in camps. They're going to take your retirement, all of your possessions, and put your kids to work in their factories. They're going to slaughter everyone who resists them, especially kids that talk in church while I'm preaching. <laughs> They'll take our best and brightest out of our nation and put them to work for their own nation. Then they're going to burn down the cathedrals and the churches. They're going to burn Bibles. They are going to ransack seminaries and Bible colleges. Then they're going to burn down the Capitol. They'll sink the Navy. They'll destroy every Air Force and Army and Marine base. They'll destroy the space program. They'll burn all of the farms. They'll demolish our resorts and beaches. They will dynamite Mount Rushmore. 
The Lincoln Memorial will be turned into nothing but dust. There'll need to be a museum commemorating the Smithsonian years later. The presidential libraries will be ransacked. And when they are all done, you will not be able to find one stone of American ingenuity and exceptionalism stacked upon another. The memory of us will be wiped off the face of the earth. Meanwhile, the evil of the enemy will become the new morality. Hardly a soul will remember the halcyon days of America. This nation, which eradicates ours, will make our current immoral culture look like the Boy Scouts of the 1950s by contrast. And you will sit in sorrow trying to remember why it was you couldn't witness to your neighbor. Well, that sounds worse than what we've got right now, doesn't it? But that's what Habakkuk just heard. That's the message he just heard. So he says, don't, no, no, don't do that. And God says, don't worry. That invading nation will get what's coming to them as well. This is all of chapter two. I'm not gonna read it. I'm gonna summarize it, all right? Their drunkenness will be their undoing. They will take out loans to finance their debauchery, but then the creditors will come a calling and they won't be able to pay. The remnant of every nation that they have sacked, the remnant of all those nations will gather together and plunder them. The stone and wood of their towers will cry out for their having been founded upon iniquity. It will become evident that all their conquest amounts to nothing. And then God himself will arrive on the scene. No longer will a man make his neighbor drunk so that he can look upon their nakedness. No longer will evil be called good and good be called evil. The violence done to that conquering nation will overwhelm you if you see it and their idols will betray them. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. That's chapter two. Look at chapter three with me. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the oceans and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horse, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. 
the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrow the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. What you see in our day is corrupt, discouraging, and, and maddening. And if you live by sight, you will be corrupted by it, discouraged by it, and maddened by it. We don't live by sight, we live by faith. And those reminders bring us yielded peace. I'm not looking at you, Grace. Don't get nervous. Just looking at the party going on behind you there. Hey, Owen. Those reminders bring us to a place of yielded peace. All right. Verse 17 of chapter 3. Look, look right at it. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the, yield, and the fields rather yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This kind of yielded peace doesn't come from gritting your teeth and trying hard, right? This kind of yielded peace certainly doesn't come from observing your surroundings in our culture, right? This kind of peace comes from knowing in whom you have believed and being persuaded that he's able to keep that which you've committed to him against the day of judgment. It comes from believing that what God began in you on the day of your salvation, he is faithful to complete, right? Now, there's something interesting that happened almost without us realizing it as we made our way through the entirety of the book of Habakkuk. Let me put it in terms I think we can better understand. Listen. Though I lose my possessions, be left defeated and alone. Though I lose my health and can't stand on my own. Though I lose my bride, for she goes before me home. I cannot lose the hope I've found at my father's throne. 
Though I lose my friends and find none who understands, though I lose my way in dry and distant lands, though I lose the strength to meet all this life's demands, I cannot lose the love which scarred my Savior's hands. Though I lose the thrill of all earth's sights to see, though I lose the confidence of youth's fleeting guarantee, though I lose the comfort of all things yet to be, I cannot lose the promise of Christ's endless love for me. Though I lose my vision and cannot see the day, though I lose my hearing and sounds of sweet hymns fade, though I lose my taste and all my hair turns gray, I cannot lose the thrill of my sins being washed away. Though I stand before you, deserving endless blame, and lay no claim to righteousness, for all my deeds are shame. Though I've done so little, you love me just the same, and none can steal the joy I've found in Jesus' name. You see, Habakkuk ends with a song. He hears this awful news the truth about what's coming next. And he starts singing all of chapter three. You caught it because it had the Selahs in there, right? The promise of God that he would right all wrongs, destroy all sin and make all things new. That promise has its ultimate fulfillment in a manger on Christmas day. Jesus Christ becoming a baby who grew into a man, the most wonderful man who ever walked the face of this earth was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief who shed no tears for his own sorrows, but sweat drops of blood for yours and for mine. He didn't have any sorrow, folks. He was enthroned in heaven. He came for us to redeem us. The man who healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute, who raised the dead, comforted the afflicted, released the captives, and taught us what it means to believe in God, hung on a cross and died so that we might be his most prized relationship. While he hung there, he lost his most prized relationship. I don't know exactly how that happened, but I know that something in the relationship between the father and the son changed for Jesus cried out, and it wasn't just hyperbole. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He, for you, for you, that's why. That you might have joy alongside the sorrow that you endure in this life. Though you lose all those things I mentioned in that poem, you can't lose his love. You can't lose his affection. You can't lose his promise. You can't lose the work that he did to secure your redemption. You can't lose being in the grip of his unchanging grace. You can't lose those things. 
And that should give us joy no matter what else is going on. Though he slay me, even in the midst of profound sorrow, we can have real joy. Habakkuk is offered, listen, no comfort. None. He is told things will go from bad to worse. Yet, his oracle ends with a song of joy because he was living by faith. So, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, 